Let us pray together. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and kinsman redeemer. Amen. Today we are going to look at how the blessings of God remove curses from us. We read in our first scripture lesson, Greg read out of Genesis chapter 3, about Adam, Eve, and the serpent in the garden. The serpent was tempting Eve in order to attack God. Adam should have opposed the serpent, but he is silent and watches things play out. And so Adam lets the serpent deceive Eve, and he is himself led astray. But when God pronounces judgment, he judges more than just Adam, Eve, and the serpent. He also talks about the seed of Eve and the seed of the serpent. And he judges Satan. Was Satan even there? He was because the serpent was serving Satan's will. It was a clandestine operation. Satan was acting through the serpent to attack God through Adam and Eve. So we see spiritual warfare in the garden. But of course, God captures the serpent. He brings the warfare of Satan to light, and he announces how a seed will crush Satan's head. The offspring of Eve will overcome the offspring of Satan. Matthew also talks about the judgment of Satan the reversal of the curses in the garden. Because Jesus and his church defeat Satan. Just as God walked in the garden and pronounced judgment on creation, so Jesus is the light. And he calls his disciples the light of the world, together exposing the deeds of darkness and illuminating everything good. Just as God promised a seed of Eve fighting and overcoming the seed of the serpent, So also Jesus is on this very mission, and the disciples join Jesus in his warfare against Satan. In Jesus and his church, the seed of the woman is crushing the head of the serpent. So this is what our lesson today will cover. We're going to look at how Jesus and his church are overcoming God's enemies. How we do this lies within our spiritual warfare that we all endure So today we're going to study the Beatitudes. Now to be honest, the Beatitudes are not often uh, reflected upon when we're thinking about head crushing or we're talking about the judgment of Satan and the warfare that goes on. Those are offensive themes. The Beatitudes are blessings. We don't associate them with combat. We read Jesus' blessings too often merely as devotional therapy or just moral teaching. When we won't calm the quiet words of Jesus when he was sitting on the mountain, put us to rest. We think that they remove Jesus is removing the violence from us, and so we are free from suffering. The Beatitudes are joyful, but they're joyful for those who are in the midst of combat. We can't lose sight of the fight that we are in, the fight that these blessings themselves pronounce against curses. These are the banner of God for his blood-stained warriors. They are powerful judgments. When Jesus is blessing, he is speaking powerful judgments that overcome 
curses and woes. So our sermon will just look at two questions. We're going to look at what do the Beatitudes teach us about warfare? And then secondly, how is God present in our warfare to judge Satan? First of all, the Beatitudes teach spiritual war. Look at where the words occur in context. Just before the Sermon on the Mount, right after Jesus gathers his disciples, he heals people oppressed by demons who are suffering severe pain, seizures, and paralysis. We read in chapter 4, verse 25, large crowds from Galilee, from the ten cities, from Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan are following him. They're coming to Jesus' healings. Jesus is the chief healer. He's the creator of the human body and the soul. He is the surgeon of surgeons, and he is opening a clinic and making visits to the sick. He works on patients whether or not they are easy cases, and he cares for the complete wholeness and well-being, not just of their physical ailments, but of their spiritual maladies too. His treatment can work instantly, so you better believe that he's drawing a crowd. The disease, the sick, these people that are suffering severe pain, demon possession, those having seizures, paralyzed people, they're all coming to him. Among the crowds are his disciples, and he is teaching his disciples. They see in Jesus a healer who helps people that are hurting. And they're taking notes how they also may serve with him in this ministry. His ministry extends past these crowds. The whole earth will be healed. People of all nations, even people not yet born. So Jesus ascends a mountain to teach his disciples about the ministry they are coming to share with him. Jesus teaches his disciples so that we too, his faithful servants today, may continue the ministry of our master. Discipleship, healing, and exorcism set the stage for the Beatitudes. These actions also appear on the other side of the Sermon on the Mount too. After preaching, when Jesus comes down from the mountain, he goes back to his healing ministry. With a touch, he heals a leper and sends him to the temple. With a word, he heals a centurion's paralyzed servant. With a touch, he heals Peter's mother-in-law who's suffering with a fever. With a word, he drove out the spirits of the demon-possessed. So within this word-and-touch pattern that Matthew is presenting, the Sermon on the Mount is an exorcism. It's a kingdom-wide healing. Jesus' words are not passive. He is driving out Satan and establishing the kingdom of heaven upon earth. He pronounces blessings for the redemption of mankind from Satan's curse. Blessings resound in the midst of Jesus conquering demons and healing sin-cursed people. It's not surprising, then, for Jesus to bless the poor in spirit, people who are mourning, the meek, people who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, his insulted followers, and the persecuted church. God's people are in war because God is judging Satan and reversing the curses from Eden. 
Jesus is fighting in God's battle, but not Jesus alone, because He is training His church, discipling them to live in Him. So His words guide Jesus' own life, but they also guide our shared work with Him, how we take care of the new creation. We, the church, beat back the rebellions of the wicked, even Satan and his demons. Let's be clear about spiritual warfare. We are in a battle. But the righteous obedience to God that we possess in Christ, our battle in divine warfare is how we wage this war, according to the blessings. How does this happen? How do our lives reverse the curse? Is it by mourning, showing mercy, looking to God with pure hearts, making peace, receiving persecution with joy, and obtaining a reward for our sufferings? Well, consider your military service at church today. God says, and so we do, we have marching orders in our bulletin that we follow. God says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so we bring poor and helpless sinners through the waters of baptism into church membership. If we don't have a baptism every week, we pass by the fountain on our entrance in, reminding us that we have received by God's mercy the Spirit of Christ. In some baptismal rites, people even spit at the devil because they recognize they are renouncing Satan, and they are already in the spiritual fight against him during their baptism. God says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And we come, confess our sins, and receive absolution for the grief of sins that we have. We receive comfort for our mourning by the words of the gospel. God says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And we gather each week to encourage our walk of obedience. Together, we learn fresh ways to live out our callings and our responsibilities in Christ. You are right now obeying these military orders of the Beatitudes by being here at church. You are judging the world by taking heed according to His Word and bearing fruit from the Word with patience. God says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And we feast on bread and wine from the Lord's table. The Lord's Supper fills us with righteousness through the food and drink. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Our ministry of intercession asks for God in His mercy to hear our prayers for people in the world and for one another. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We just said, Lord, purify our hearts according to Your Word. And we see His ways in Scripture. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Well, having received peace from God ourselves, and having made peace with one another, we go forth from here to act as agents of peace in the world. And there we receive our persecution. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what happens when we declare the testimony of Jesus and obey him in the world, we face suffering for our faith. So the Spirit blesses us in our worship, and our worship wars against the enemies of God to renew the world. The warfare of the church is known to us all. 
Paul orders the Ephesians to stand against the schemes of the devil, for we wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. God blesses us in our spiritual battle. He gives us His armor, the armor that Jesus uses. We can call the armor of God the Beatitudes in military uniform, the belt of truth, a breastplate that covers the stomach of those who are hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We are peacemakers and we get the gospel of peace fitted to our feet, a shield of faith with which to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And we need to see God, and so He protects our head with a helmet of salvation. And He gives us the sword of the Spirit, the word of truth. What truth? What word of truth? Well, among the whole canon of Scripture, Jesus' words, His sermons, His parables, His teachings, His prayers, His blessings. So the Beatitudes are a sharp piece on this blade of this sword of truth, the sword of the Spirit that we have. We receive military service uniform when we gather for holy worship within the church, not so that we can cower and retreat from the world. The church is God's soldier. God equips us with armor, with weapons, and purpose in our stand against the devil's schemes. He puts hammers in our hands so we can go build the kingdom. We are lords together with Him in God's kingdom. Jesus tells His disciples, and this was referenced in one of the hymns we sang, The gates of Hades will not prevail against you. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So you and I today are duty-bound to pursue excellence on earth, in our homes, at work, with our families and friends, even with our enemies, because we are in a spiritual battle. What we do on earth has consequences for the kingdom of heaven that is among us. So this will bring us to our second point. First, we saw how the Beatitudes lead us into war, how they're in that context. Well, let's keep our feet to this path And see how God redeems the world through His servants. How do faithful warriors of God's kingdom rule earth? What does obedience to the Beatitudes look like for us? Let's consider a familiar example. We'll start with looking at the Old Testament in broad strokes. And retrace the narrative of Israel's history. Notice how the Beatitudes shape God's redemptive plan. Starting with Abraham, he receives a promise to become the father of many nations. Scripture tells us he confesses of himself when this promise comes that he is nothing but dust and ashes. The promise of the kingdom greets a man who is poor in spirit. Later, his descendants are in slavery and they're mourning. But God hears their groanings and he remembers his covenant and so he sets them free and comforts them in their journey. Moses leads the people through the wilderness. It's said of Moses that he, the man Moses, was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. Ask Moses the meek, and he'll tell you how faithful Israelites can inherit 
the land of promise. In the time of the judges, Ruth is starving, but the Lord puts her under his own protection and provides her with food from a man and future husband named Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, marries his bride in righteousness. Now remember that story, he even makes sure he gives the shoe to the right person, fulfilling the righteousness, the custom of the day. After the judges' era come the kings. King David writes in Psalm 18.25, but this also appears in Second Samuel, in a song. He sings, With the merciful thou wilt show thyself merciful, and with the upright man thou wilt show thyself upright. God taught his king to receive mercy and to be merciful towards others. In order to receive mercy, he must show mercy. Who can see the Lord? Remember when the prophet Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon his throne, high and exalted? He felt impure, but the seraphim touched a burning coal to his lips and purged him of his sins. Then Isaiah, seeing the Lord, goes and preaches so that all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of God. God is purifying hearts and opening eyes. A few years down the line, another prophet, Daniel, makes peace for others in Babylon. He interprets the alarms of nightmares, and he sits among a den filled with lions. And the foreign kings, these Babylonian rulers, even recognize this, and they praise Daniel's gods, promoting him in his service, because they know that he is a child of the true God. And the prophets, Paul tells us in Hebrews, some faced jeers and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death with stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. The spiritual battle of Israel, of the prophets, is our battle in the church too. Only together with our faithful endurance are the sufferings of the prophets made perfect. Waiting in the midst of suffering and working for what has been promised in the future, this is our shared hope, too. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus Christ secures our hope in God's promise. He himself fulfills the Beatitudes. The Spirit is at work in his life. Even before chapter 5, Matthew already narrates this within Jesus' life. Listen to this. Uh, we can enlarge on lots of different ways Jesus fulfills the Beatitudes, but look at this one structure that comes early in the book. The Magi, who are poor in spirit, they're humble, coming to serve someone, bring gifts that they give away, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, in order to exalt Bethlehem's ruler, who they meet in a stable, and who is by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Then furious Herod kills any child in his hunt for Jesus. 
and creates weeping and great mourning, we are told, in the area of Bethlehem. John the meek, remember, he doesn't even consider himself worthy to unloose the sandal of the one coming after him. John the meek prepares for the coming king to enter the land and take possession of it. He's in the wilderness, in the Jordan, doing this, his ministry. Hungry and thirsty, Jesus endures temptation for 40 days in warfare against Satan by living according to every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's righteousness fills him. When John is arrested, Jesus shows mercy to the nations by continuing his ministry. They've just arrested arrested John, the forerunner. And Jesus continues to warn them that they need to flee. They need to repent. They need to stop from continuing in this. This will bring wrath upon them. He takes the very same words that were in John's mouth and says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Jesus then preaches repentance himself in Galilee, purifying hearts, the Son of God showing people the Father. He gathers disciples and makes them fishers of men, ministers of reconciliation, peacemakers. And finally, as Jesus teaches righteousness to people oppressed by demons, He heals their every disease and they receive the good news of the kingdom. The bodies of these persecuted people are restored to new health at Jesus' own hands. So Jesus Himself fulfills the Beatitudes here. The Spirit is guiding Him on a Beatitude path. He does this many times over. We see God's Spirit, though, already at the beginning, where we might not expect it, blessing the world in a somewhat mysterious, somewhat hidden, somewhat open way. Aren't God's ways greater than we can imagine and more divine than we could plan? Just to contrast Jesus' life with a life that is anti-Beatitudes, consider the Pharisees of Matthew 23. In Matthew 23, Jesus doesn't pronounce blessings. He pronounces woes. And they line up with the Beatitudes he pronounced earlier. Because of their disobedience, the Pharisees are receiving woes for how they live, rather than the disciples who receive blessings for following God's path. The proud spirits of the Pharisees do not enter the kingdom of heaven. We're told that they are taught by God but they don't love God, and so they don't enter, and they even block the way into the kingdom of heaven. They attack those who mourn. They take the widows' houses, and they devour them. They devour the mourners. They love their own long prayers instead. And this intensifies their damnation. They don't receive comfort for this being with the mourners. They devour the mourners themselves, and that intensifies their damnation in hell. Are they meek? Do they inherit the land of promise? No. They make converts to a dead religion, converts who become the sons of hell, we are told. Are they filled because they hunger and thirst after righteousness? No. What do they do at the temple altar? They swear oaths and deny the altar's gifts, the gift of a fellowship meal with God. How about their mercy? Are they merciful? Well, they teach the law, and they love its minutia, but they don't practice it. They don't practice justice, mercy, 
or faithfulness. They look pure on the outside, but they are impure inside. Their clean appearances hide greed and self-indulgence. They don't look to God, but God looks and sees them and is angry. Do the Pharisees make peace? Well, they wear righteous masks only to hide their secret wickedness. They are whitewashed tombs of dead men's bones. Peace is a disguise for their violence against God. They are the children of Satan. They prefer, later in the crucifixion narrative, they're going to prefer Barabbas, the murderer, to Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Indeed, they crucify Jesus and claim his blood on their hands. They are not peacemakers. Don't be deceived when they profess regard for the prophets. They are the murderers and persecutors of the prophets. These idolatrous Pharisees are the contrast to how we should live, the Beatitudes. They departed from their trust in God, and without repentance, they received not the kingdom of God. Instead of blessing them in their battle against Satan, Jesus identifies them with Satan's army and pronounces woes. So their disobedience is an example for us of how not to live. We become apostate Pharisees if we deny Jesus and wander from his ways. But their negative example also helps us see how Jesus expects the Beatitudes to be lived. We must receive from God, love God, and open his kingdom to people. Like the centurion in Capernaum, whose love for a servant brings him to seek help from a man with authority. Jesus was amazed at him. We must mourn with widows and provide for them. Like when Jesus takes the hands of Peter's mother-in-law, who is sick with a fever. He serves her in her weakness, but she recovers and waits on him. We too must meet others in their pains, stand beside them, mourn with them, heal them, cheer them up. We must turn people from dead religion lest they perish in hell. Remember the two gathering men who violently block Jesus' way into the town, and so Jesus orders the demons out of them into the pigs that run into the lake? Jesus set them free in order to send them out into the region and share good news. We too must declare the gospel and create disciples who turn people to Christ. We must share the Lord's Supper and honor the gift of fellowship it brings. Like the guests that Jesus invites to his dinner table, the tax collectors and sinners who celebrate Jesus' sanctifying love for them, we too must shelter and protect and care for people, crowning heads with everlasting joy, sharing fellowship. We must teach and practice justice, mercy, and faithfulness, applying God's new covenant to every area of our life. Something as practical as clothing people is stuff that matters to God. We must desire for Jesus to search us and to purify our hearts, not hide from Him. Because he shows compassion on the harassed and helpless souls. Our high priest paid for our sins to free us from greed and self-indulgence. To grant us peace so we can look to him all the ends of the earth and be saved. And we entrust our bodies and our bones to him. 
Because the blood of the cross does ensure our everlasting life. Sickness, betrayals, arrests, persecutions, deaths, they cannot kill our soul. God will acknowledge our faithfulness before the Father. He will reward us with great treasures. Rewards that are eternal, imperishable, and incorruptible, kept in heaven for us. So do you have a picture of how the Beatitudes shape your life? Your daily, your complete obedience in all things, little and big. Follow the strategies that God has revealed in His blessings and live by faith in Jesus. So as we end today's lesson, let us join together and exalt Christ Jesus in our lives. Our leader is the King of Heaven. He does not lose track of us. He brings us to victory and secures our reward. He disciples us to be His people. He trains and guides us to walk through death to life. We are mighty to conquer the curses of this world. We are in Christ only if we trust in His promises and only if we obey His commands. We've been marking time this year uh, with the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And we've told and heard a lot of good stories about Martin Luther. The marriage that he had and the romance with, between Martin and Catherine. The uh, swan that rises from the goose's flames. Here I stand, I can go no further. Here's another episode. When Luther was in his office one night, he was struggling with temptations. So he picked up an ink bottle and threw it off his desk at Satan. He wasn't alone in the room. The temptation was assailing him, and he knew he was in a fight. So Luther was battling the unseen demon. But God was also there, exercising the room through Luther and his weapon of warfare, an ink bottle. Satan will act through an apostate nation to kill Christ, but God is always greater than Satan. That's the cardinal rule for spiritual warfare. Satan is not omnipotent. God is all-powerful. So while Satan uses a serpent to nip the heel, God comes himself and crushes the head of the serpent. God acts through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ to place his feet on top of the devil. And God acts through us too, through our obedience. We judge every day by what we do. We participate in warfare. As Augustine says, the coming of the Savior continually occurs in the church that is in His members, in which He comes little by little and piece by piece, since the whole church is His body. Our daily obedience brings judgment against God's enemies and blessings for the church. We help our neighbors when we work hard at our callings, what God has set forth for us to do. We walk in righteousness and holiness, even in the midst of war. But our faithfulness, our love, our good deeds, they bless the world. We join Christ in the work of crushing Satan's head. So when you need encouragement in your warfare, turn to the Beatitudes. Pray through them and explore how they relate to history. Ask the Spirit to guide your life in their form. Sing through them. 
And remember, be encouraged by them, that the Lord will bless you, keep you, make His face shine upon you, lift up His countenance upon you. He will give you peace. We may not detect the secret judgments of God in our circumstances, but we still trust God and stay faithful. God sends us to the front lines of battle and warfare, so our struggles are real. But you must overcome your campaign in Christ. When exhaustive warfare takes a toll on your souls and your bodies, rejoice. Jesus knows how that feels, and He Himself will bless you. Therefore, come what torment may, what lurking evil or nagging sickness afflicts you, and finally, death. These curses will not conquer us. We have a unity with Christ Himself. Take the victory of the Spirit, the victory of Christ in us. He establishes the Father's kingdom through us against all enemies. He seats us in heaven as perfect, spotless, healed, blameless, blessed children of God. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank You for blessing us, for the words You speak, for the actions You do. Live among us and help our lives bear fruit with patience, living like Christ. Equip us for our warfare and help us serve You. For we pray this in Your name. Amen.